Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 103 with the incomparable Thais Gibson. Man, oh man, oh man. You're going to love this interview. We talked about all kinds of really, really deep principles. And she has all kinds of degrees and certificates and uh, certifications galore across the board. Neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis. and But very, very practical, applicable, universal principles we talked about here. Before we get into all that and the interview, I just want to remind you, as always, up front, you are absolutely priceless. You're never alone. I think you're going to feel even more that way after listening to this interview, understanding the true nature and abilities that exist within you and just how empowered we all truly are as people once we wake up and realize it and then harness it and run with it. Uh, Don't let anyone ever convince you otherwise anything, whatever your life circumstances have been. This is an unchanging state, being uh, empowered and also recognizing that you are absolutely priceless. And along with that, you're never alone. And that, you know, as a lot of people are going through this uh, virus situation and being locked down in some capacity, uh, a lot of people have felt alone for a good reason, to be honest, because they have literally been alone in some cases. uh, And if if not alone, completely away from friends, family, loved ones, and uh, co-workers especially and things like that, or just from being out and about restaurants and the things that they were doing in their day-to-day life. You are not alone. You're absolutely priceless. As far as this interview goes, there's not really a ton I can say up front that I don't want you to just hear in the interview. We covered all kinds of topics, everything from wounds and overcoming them to the interconnected state of the subconscious mind. Uh, We talked about uh, attachment theory and uh, all the things that happen with patterns and repetition and unmet needs and the nature of needs and some examples and stories and all just all kinds of stuff. You're going to love this interview. Thais Gibson has a YouTube channel. It's all called Personal Development School. Uh, she's in Toronto, Canada. Uh, the YouTube channel alone has almost 24,000 subscribers and nearly 2 million views. So we're not talking small time here. Uh, and the material and the articulate, sharp way that she presents her ideas and facts and uh, just knowledge and reality is uh, second to none. So uh, there's nothing more I can say. Our challenges alone... Uh, study, keep studying, just like we talked about here. She mentioned a bunch of uh, good material here at the end of our interview. Uh, people can read, listen to audiobooks, whatever that might be, and whatever works for you. Study. Some people like to watch a video, you know, some sort of documentary, but stimulate the mind, keep the mind sharp. And this is what happens when people like Thais, very educated woman, she's done all these things, and you and I can be that too. So we ought to aspire to just continue to study and be an example for those around us, kids and whatnot, that might also be looking at us. Uh, Second challenge, of course, make great moments. Make people matter. That's what that's all about. Surprise people, love people, do all the things that make great moments. Like I always say, these are pillars in our lives that will overshadow To a large extent, the mistakes, we all will have made mistakes, and those are there for a reason. We talked about that in the interview, mistakes and nature of suffering and pain and pleasure and all the things that are associated with all that. We went, I feel like we went pretty deep. Uh, Make great moments. Make those with loved ones. This will overshadow uh, those areas where we may have fallen short because we're all imperfect. And our last challenge, of course, is always let's keep doing this podcast together. I'm so excited to bring you this interview. Thais Gibson is sharp, articulate, and smart as can be. So without further ado, here's our interview. Here we go. So excited to be here with Thais Gibson and uh, talk about all things about personal development. She has a personal development school in Toronto and uh, you've already listened to the intro, so I've gone into all those things already. But Thais, how are you doing today? 
I'm doing wonderfully. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm very yeah. excited to be here. Yeah, it's our privilege. It's our pleasure. You're coming to us from uh, Canada. Did you grow up in Canada, by the way? I did. I, I, I was born in Toronto and, and raised, and then I went to school in Georgia and then Florida. So spent a good bit of time there and then um, came back here when I finished my education. Ah, okay. And we are talking about, I live in Vegas. You've been to Vegas some years ago, but uh, nobody's been to yeah. Vegas much lately because everything's closed down. But uh, any, that's yeah. where I am for those who don't know as well. So <laughs> cool. <Beautiful. laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your background because... Uh, I'm always fascinated with people's background, you know, because I've got kind of my own wacky background and I don't know that yours is wacky or not or whatever adjectives we want to use. But uh, you, so you grew up in Canada. I've I've only been across the border at uh, Niagara Falls way back in the 90s. <laughs> so it's been a while. Well, but Canada is yeah, an interesting so, place. Cool people. I've had a few Canadians on the podcast already. Go ahead. Yeah. So I um. I, I was born in Toronto, and then, um, to be honest, I had kind of a, a tumultuous upbringing a little bit, a lot of um, sort of fighting and, and some crazy stuff in my home growing up, um, and I think that's sort of what first introduced me to really wondering why people do the things they do and, and um, sort of being interested in the mind and human behavior and, and all those sorts of things, um, and I think as a result of some of the, the different kind of childhood traumas I experienced, you know, to make a very long story, a very short story, um, I actually got addicted to painkillers after knee surgery when wow. I was about 14, just about 15 years old. And, um, and that was a really interesting thing for me because I had my first experience with withdrawal before I even knew what that even was. Um, and that became a, a battle I fought for about the next seven years of my life and, and, um, really didn't want to fight, like really was like, what's going on? What's happening? Why can't I, you know, I would journal about it every night and try to work through it and break through it. And, um, I just felt like I was at war with myself. Mm -hmm. Like I had this like conscious intention, you know, put an end to this. I don't want to be doing this anymore. You know, the, the, one of the people I was getting them from at school, um, you know, would I be like, I'm going to go this way and avoid her in the hallway. And I'd make all these like elaborate plans of all these things I would try to do. Um, and I just kept falling into the same rut and pattern and hole. And it was a really scary thing for me. I think mm -hmm. cause especially at that young of an age, I didn't really feel like there was anybody I could talk to about it. And it was this very sort of like hidden thing. Wow. And, um, and a few years later after trying, um, inpatient rehab, outpatient rehab, you name it. I tried lots of things to, to try to get healthy. Um, mm -hmm. I actually learned about the subconscious mind and, and a lot of things hadn't worked for me. I did the AA meetings, the NA meetings. And, um, and when I learned about the subconscious, like the first, I remember the first thought for myself was like, this is the war within myself. This is why I want so badly to get away from something. And I keep going back because one of the sort of primary principles I learned is you can't outwill or overpower your own subconscious mind. Right. What you have to do is understand it and reprogram it. And the more you fight anything at a subconscious level, you're actually essentially feeding it. And I had a lot of experiences where I would be trying to overcome it. The more I sort of pushed and, and tried to control the habit and tried to control the addiction and tried to, you know, get angry at myself or talk to myself poorly in my internal dialogue or guilt trip myself or be mm -hmm. hard on myself. The more mm -hmm. I tried to do that, I noticed actually the worse my addiction became. And I remember it just put so many things into perspective for me. So I spent the next, um, 
um, quite a few years of my life doing a really big deep dive into the subconscious mind itself and, and understanding all the principles and exploring. And mm-hmm. it was a really beautiful, powerful experience for me. And it actually led to me completely healing. Um, and I've been fully sober for years and years now awesome. and, um, and really overcoming a lot of other things, like healing a lot of traumas I went through and, and just shifting my perspective around things. And I think the natural result of that was like, oh my goodness, I need to tell everybody about this and everybody needs to understand this because I saw so much pain around me, especially yeah. growing up. And I was yeah. like, wow, these things are, are transformable. So that led to um, going back to school for a very long time, um, doing a master's degree and then about 13 different certifications to try to really get a full perspective on how to put everything together. And then that led to the creation of, um, well, I worked in practice for about five years as well with, with clients before then starting to teach more classes. And, and then that created the personal development school, which is an online platform that basically addresses all different things, um, specifically at, at the subconscious level. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a history and very, very impressive because I've looked at all your credentials and degrees and all the programs that you're certified in and so on. Uh, very, very interesting. I want to dig. I want to kind of do a deep dive on this subconscious mind topic because, and maybe it's just for selfish reasons. Because to me, I mean, it's something that all of us as humans, uh, it's it's part of us, and I think most of us mm-hmm. don't understand, and to a large extent, even at all. A lot of people, it's like we hear the term, but before we dig deep into that, um, do you have any siblings? And if so, did they go through any similar, you know? Uh, experiences, traumas, addiction, any of that kind of thing, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, I, I have a sibling, um, and she's seven years younger than me. I absolutely adore her. She's um, just such an important person in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I sort of felt very protective over her growing up because I was like, you know, the older sister. And and, um, and so I think she went in sort of the opposite direction. I think she... She's very disciplined, um, very um, private, mm-hmm. and and she, I mean, she's had to process a lot of similar hardships, but she goes about it in a different way. And I think she probably, to be quite honest, saw a few of the things that I was doing in my teens and was like, oh, that's really scary. <laughs> I don't want to yeah, be in that yeah. boat. And so I think it hopefully deterred her in, in the other direction. And I also hopefully think that um, I was able to sort of, you know, if there was stuff going on in the household or things like that, like take her upstairs and put on some music and, um, sort of keep her away from, from some things. Um, so yeah, so she's been in the opposite direction. She's actually just got into, um, she's decided to sort of make a, a career change and she's just got into a master's program at Columbia, um, for film, which was like her having to sort of make a whole pivot in her life and, and a really courageous decision. So I'm, I'm really excited for her and, and proud of her. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, that's sometimes I'm the youngest, uh, by the way, of three boys. So sometimes the youngest wow. has the advantage of seeing some of the other mistakes and things that go on. Not that everything <laughs> you did was mistakes, of course, because it got you on a great path. I think we could all agree <laughs> based on where you now uh, ended up. But, um, well, that's interesting. And so I would say a lot of people go through this whole thing with painkillers. I, for one, you know, I've had a few times where I've had prescriptions and I'm scared of it. Like I... You know, if I mm-hmm. if I can get away with it after one or two days and just like, you know, get rid of the painkillers just because I'm scared of what that does. And it's it doesn't Absolutely. necessarily it doesn't necessarily like overshadow, make you an awful person that you fell into that. 
It's it's just it's something about the neurochemical reaction and the uh, neurotransmitters and all these things that the, this whole exchange that takes place by kind of artificially taking these things into your body that happens and and some of us well, yeah if some people look down on those who get stuck in any kind of addiction whether it's illegal drugs prescription drugs painkillers whatever it is what were you gonna say? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the really important things I, I discovered from sort of doing a deep dive around this and, and really trying to understand it within myself, mm-hmm. and and I think a message that is so important that people understand as well is that, um, you know, you see, like, let's think of the example of your grandmother has to get hip surgery, right? If, if anybody's had bad memory in the past yeah. or, or a family member, you know, they're on, like, intravenous medication, right? Like, intravenous opiates really and morphine or, or whatever it might be. And so, so it's, you don't really see your grandmother come out of the hospital and become an addict. And so I think there's a couple of things that are usually going on. And, and in this, in my experience working with people in practice, I haven't really seen an exception to this rule. And it's that it's, it's for you to have the need to become an, a, addicted to something. You, it's not that you're like, the problem isn't the problem, if that makes sense. It's like the painkillers aren't the problem. It's what is creating at the root subconscious level the need to reach out and rely on painkillers oh. in order to fill that void or in order to escape that pain. And, and that's really the determining factor. I've never seen somebody be an addict who, or become an addict or become addicted to really anything um, in terms of hard drugs or things like that, even if it's like food or, or sex or whatever different addictions people struggle with. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen somebody go through that that isn't carrying some, some stored subconscious wounds that they need to resolve or work through. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing sort of a deeper dive into a lot of this stuff, one of the really profound realizations I had is that, you know, if you look at, let's just use the example of depression or anxiety, and, and we hear people say, oh, it's a chemical imbalance. And that's absolutely correct. But you're not born, you know, we don't have infants come into the world and be born with depression or anxiety. Right. And what actually happens, you know, they're not born with a chemical imbalance. You don't see a depressed six-month-old, right, or a depressed two-year-old. And so people can carry a certain genetic predisposition towards these things, but it's really that that, that genetic predisposition becomes activated by what imprints you on your environment. And as we go through life and early childhood, we get imprinted by our experiences at the emotional level. So let's say, just as an example, you have, um, you know, you go to kindergarten and you're a young child Mm -hmm. and you get bullied your first year of school. Maybe you give that meaning and you make it mean, oh, people don't like me. I can't trust people. People are unsafe. And then when this imprints your subconscious, you form this belief system and and that becomes the filter you see the world through. Now, these belief patterns create patterns of thought. So if you believe these things, you start thinking thoughts when you go back into school the next day after being bullied the day before. And you start thinking thoughts like, oh, I'm unsafe. I hope these kids don't come near me at recess. I hope, you know, whatever streams and streams of thoughts you'll think throughout the day. And how do you feel when you think these things? You start feeling anxious, afraid, you know, whatever other emotions, sad, desperate. And these emotions are made up of neurochemical reactions. So essentially what's happening is that you're having belief patterns, creating thought patterns, producing emotional reactions that are then producing neurochemicals or or that are are made up of neurochemical reactions. And therein lies your chemical balance or imbalance. Like if you have a lot of painful belief patterns and that's part of your identity at the subconscious level and that filter you see the world through, then you're going to have a lot more negative neurochemical responses throughout the course of the day occurring in a pattern-like format. 
And then the more you repeat that throughout the course of the day, the more you don't break up that internal dialogue or reprogram those subconscious beliefs, the more hardwired they become into your subconscious over time. Mm. Because one of the principles of subconscious programming is that it is programmed through repetition. Yeah. And so yeah. you can see like this sort of output and, 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 you know, on top of that, sort of the very last component, and I hope I'm not going on for too long here, but no. um, the last component is that neuroscience has also discovered and proven that every single decision we make is based on emotion. And so we can have these really like logical anal- analyses of our decisions right after they've happened at that sort of emotional tipping point. But if we're not in control of our beliefs, we're not in control of our emotional responses, and we're really not that in control of our actions. Wow. And so there's a lot to discover there, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Boy, you the, you can tell you know what you're talking about. And, and the language that you use surrounding it is very telling as well, uh, it, it, very instructive when we use words like imprint and uh, you're talking about belief patterns and thought patterns and neurochemical reactions. And uh, I think more people deal with these things to various degrees than I dare say probably all of us in some degree deal with this. But most of us, I don't think, know how to handle it. Like, how do we awaken, would you say? Because I see a lot of things both in my life, my family personally, and people I care about that to various degrees also people – uh, sometimes get in a place where it's like they're doing what we do as humans because we like patterns and repetition. And so they get in these, you know, for lack of a better word, this rut of sorts. And uh, instead of facing what's behind that, it, it's just like a very self, like a defensive uh, sort of wall that goes up instead of facing it. So how do people kind of become more conscious of the subconscious, if that's possible, and these these repeating patterns, processes, and so on? It's a beautiful question, um, and mm-hmm. I think such an important question for people to ask themselves. So, so here's something really interesting too. Okay. We have roughly, um, and and the University of California of Southern California, the Neuroimaging Institute went through and did a study about this, and and, and they say we have roughly fifty to seventy thousand thoughts per day, and roughly wow. fifty to fifty thousand or so. And this is based on estimates over thoughts over the course of a couple minutes that they studied and then sort of projected that outwards. But roughly 50,000 of them are repeated. So essentially your brain's getting caught in a lot of these feedback loops throughout the course of the day of, you know, beliefs and associations being activated, autopilot thoughts, autopilot emotions as a result of that. And then this cycle sort of recedes itself, like then negative emotions produce more negative thinking and so on and so forth. And what's actually happening is when the brain is on autopilot like that, we're actually in a light state of hypnosis, believe it or not. We're in trance. Wow. And human beings go, yeah, it's really interesting. And so we go in and out of trance throughout the course of a day. And, and research also shows that roughly every 30 to 45 minutes, the average person goes into a deep trance. And we're always in like sort of these trance-like states. And, and some examples of this that'll be really, you know, um, familiar to people are if you've driven home and, and you're like, oh, I missed my exit. How did that even happen? Or you don't even remember what you thought about your whole car ride home. You just some, somehow appear at home at the end of your work day. Or, yeah, yeah. or um, yeah, or if you've ever seen somebody watching television and you're like calling them and you're like, Bob, Bob. And Bob's just like immersed in, in the TV and, and he's not able to sort of hear you. It's actually because he's in like a, a state of trance at that time. Wow. And so it has a lot to do with the associated brain waves that are being produced during these times. And so, you know, like when somebody's watching television, they're producing a lot of alpha and beta brain waves. And this also goes into why, you know, 
commercials are, are so um, powerful because they imprint the subconscious mind in a different way as we're watching television because wow. usually people are, are, are in that trance. So, so essentially, like, how we can wake up out of that, because I love to use that word earlier, wake up out of that trance um, is our emotions are always feedback mechanisms and they're letting us know when something is out of alignment. Mm -hmm. And it's always one of two things. It's either beliefs and thought patterns being activated. So for example, if I am, let's say, um, let's say we have that child we were talking about earlier who was bullied in, in childhood. And then maybe fast forward 30 years, he's going into a business meeting and, and he hasn't reprogrammed those same beliefs and thought patterns pretty strong chance that he's going to be in that business meeting going, oh, you know, what if people get mad at my opinions? What if people make fun of me? What if people, and he's going to have those same thought and belief patterns still running, still producing emotions on autopilot. Well, if he can start recognizing, oh, I don't feel good. I feel distressed. And he can trace that backwards and go, what was I just thinking or believing that's causing me to feel this way? His emotions, just like anybody else's emotions, are feedback mechanisms letting us know when that is out of alignment. Mm -hmm. And the only other major emotional um, uh, feedback we have is if we have an unmet need. And that's part of human evolution because if, if we have a need that's unmet, we're supposed to feel bad about it so it can force us to grow and evolve and, and, um, and adapt. And so it's beautiful because we are actually looking at our emotions in a, in usually a pretty incorrect way. Yeah. We're looking at them as like, Oh, this is so painful. I'm having a bad day. This is unfair. You know, yeah. and our emotions are not there to hurt us. They're there to warn us and they're there to help us develop a, a relationship to ourselves to go inwards, wake up and then start recognizing what's happening beneath the surface at either the belief and thought level or mm -hmm. the unmet need level. Wow. Boy. You're blowing my mind. All kinds of deep, deep principles here. This is kind of a Pandora's box. We could probably go on for like two days straight talking and still not cover <laughs> everything. <laughs> a lot of good stuff. For Especially sure. with your level yeah. of expertise. I, uh, it's, it, on some level, it's kind of scary to think about that people are spending much of their day in a trance or hip, hip, hypnosis of some sort because we're passing them and, and maybe as we are also in the trance on the, on the freeway and whatever. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And, and can I add one other story for interrupting, but I want to just say one other thing. When we go into that trance, if you pay close attention, and this is really good for people to sort of come to realization, we're in like a movie in our minds, right? So people who I've seen like historically, for example, struggling with, with um, anxiety, and, and I've seen people over the years who, in my practice, who have struggle with anxiety and they come to me and they're like, I have anxiety so badly I throw up almost all the time. Wow. And the, the, one very consistent factor is always there. And it's that let's say something bad happens that makes them feel anxious or uncomfortable. Maybe they get into a fight with their spouse. They feel unsafe around that person or, or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. They don't live that experience once. They live that experience in trance throughout the course of the week, another 50, 60, 70, 100 times. And they replay wow. in this movie in their mind that fight or the likelihood of the fight happening again mm -hmm. or um, the thing at work that could go wrong or the, the making the mistake. And the brain has a very difficult time telling the difference when it's in a trance-like state between what's real and what's imagined because it gets really identified with that movie that plays out in, in your mind. And so we spend a lot of time 
having painful experiences from the past and then replaying them on autopilot over and over again. And it's so important that we wake up out of that and then we start asking ourselves, okay, how can I shift my perception around this at the belief or thought level? Like if I'm believing that my spouse is going to leave me or that my boss is going to fire me, like, can I question that? Can I really know that that's true? Or are these just fears replaying on autopilot? Mm-hmm. Or what needs do I have to resolve this experience right now? Because it always takes us back to there's one of those two things happening. Wow. Belief and thoughts out of alignment or unmet needs. And so I, you know, the, the tagline I give to people as they're sort of learning this is when you feel that and you're in that movie and, and you realize that you kind of wake up out of it because you're like, oh, I'm feeling bad. What's going on? It's always two steps. It's change your thinking, meet your needs. And if you can become masterful at those two things, then you start being able to control the emotions that are happening in your life and also use them as feedback to help you learn or discover what you need. And and life becomes a lot more simple and and easy to deal with that way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A lot of uh, deep, deep principles still. I I am very intrigued by the the topic of beliefs being out of alignment and unmet needs and these things you're talking about. I've heard the term triggers in the past. Uh, if, for example, someone was assaulted or, God forbid, raped or all these things that happen and the person looks a certain way, they're tall and blonde or whatever, and they pass this someone looking that way at the mall, you get these fearful and all the traumatic emotions start to resurface. Um, mm-hmm. and so there, there's these interesting things about humans and patterns, but there's ways that we can break patterns as well. And you talk a lot about that, but uh, before we get into all that, you also, I noticed on your YouTube channel, you, you talk a little bit about suffering, uh, and, and that there's purposes to suffering. Do so, uh, you want to talk yeah. more about that and what, what suffering's all about, that it's not just necessarily an awful thing, uh, completely. Tell, tell me about suffering. Absolutely. So so what I like to say is that pain is our unmet needs, and pain is always quite manageable. It's always like a five or, or less out of ten, and it's there to force us to grow and evolve. And then suffering is the meaning we give to those unmet needs, and that's actually the belief and thought stuff we're talking about. So, for example, let's say that um, I am feeling disempowered. Let's say I work for a company, and, and I feel disempowered at work. And maybe I want more responsibility or growth or I have, you know, my my basic human needs for growth and and significance aren't being met, you know, so I might have a little bit of pain that's forcing me to like try to go and work and be like, okay, what's going on here? I I need to grow. I feel disempowered. What can I do about it? What are some strategies that I can come up with to meet these needs? But then suffering is when we go like this. It's when we go, I feel disempowered at work. My life is horrible. My boss doesn't care about me. Nobody thinks I'm good enough. I'm never going to succeed. And it's all the storytelling we do when we feel disempowered. And so suffering is feedback. And suffering, we do not have to suffer. And I know that sounds like such a bold, crazy statement, but we let me say this. Yeah. Naturally, human beings like to give meaning out of make meaning out of things, mm-hmm. but you can be masterful at undoing that and you can start using that meaning as feedback instead of just unnecessary suffering and you don't have to sit in suffering for long. And I can tell you that personally, somebody who was also diagnosed with depression and anxiety at a young age and was on antidepressants and, and, you know, went through that whole thing. And, mm-hmm. and as I learned this and learned to reprogram my subconscious and my relationship to storytelling and giving painful meaning to situations and, and really start questioning the stories I was telling myself, because a lot of these stories are basically just old imprints from childhood replaying on autopilot that were essentially like reprojecting onto our current reality now from our past. 
once you start to question those stories and, and not get stuck in that trance, you're repatterning your belief and thoughts, which then repatterns your emotional output throughout the course of the day, which then, of course, changes your neurochemistry as a result. And and I'm definitely not saying to anybody, like, stop antidepressants or, or anything like that. But, you know, I know as a person, I was able to get off antidepressants, and I know for certain I won't ever have to go back to that. Um, so, you know, hmm. what I am encouraging is that when people are going through struggles or challenges or suffering is to recognize that if you can work through that and break through that and come to understand it differently, you don't have to stay there and, and you can get really far out of that. And and we want to look at our emotions and our suffering as a symptom and as a feedback mechanism, as opposed to part of our identity. Like, oh, this is, I'm just having a bad year or just a bad week or life is just hard. Like we, the more we identify with that, the harder it becomes to step out of that and break through it. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, I I listen to a lot of things. You probably heard Tony Robbins and stuff. He talks about that we uh, nothing really has meaning. We assign meaning to everything, and yeah. you know, and and there's all kinds of examples, stories, parables about all this, where the two people can go through very similar things or identical things and come out completely different, both in their uh, reaction and emotional state and just overall well-being in life. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? I, I, I want to share a story about that, if that's okay, because it's such Please. a powerful story, and, and people can look this up, and I think I found people get a lot out of this. So your brain is like an association-making machine. When you were saying if you yeah. pass the tall blonde person and that, is your brain has these programmed associations, right? And that's what you're trying to find at the subconscious level and then change. Um, but there's a, a tribe um, in India called the Satya tribe, and it's spelled for anybody who listens to this and wants to look it up, S-A-T-I-Y-A-A. And years ago, as I was doing some of this healing work on myself and, and really diving into it, I happened to see this um, documentary, and it was this woman, and basically the Satya tribe has these belief systems that say, um, this is the underworld, we're living in essentially hell, and um, when people are, are pregnant or born, they have funerals, they have grieving ceremonies, and when people die, they have these... Um, like celebrations and there's this interview of this woman with a translator and there there's this sort of party going on in the background and her mother had just passed away and she's talking about it to mm -hmm. this this translator and interviewer and like I remember just being shocked because there's pure joy in her eyes like she's purely joyful that that her mother had just passed and it was like that morning or the day before that her mother passed away and it just it kind of is like, you know, shell shocking for a moment because something that I think we all fear and, and have sort of would be so difficult for, for so many of us. It tells you the power of like what beliefs and associations we've made towards certain things and how yeah. that creates that emotional output. So just to give an example of that, because you're raising such a, a powerful point there. Yeah. And modern Western culture is that way towards death. Uh, interestingly, you know, I went down to Chichen Itza in Mexico and they talk about the Mayan culture, and you may be familiar with some of this, that uh, they, to a large extent, from what we understand, love death. They, uh, they would play these sports, and the person who won, the person who won would be put to death. And uh, yeah. wow. it's just really interesting. And certain other cultures, wow. Eastern and Middle <laughs> Eastern cultures, and you know, various ways this plays out. And this is just one example, but death is obviously a very strong part of what we are as people. Uh, so it's actually a great example to use because how we look at death and we deal with all sorts of 
uh, small and large life and death moments throughout our days of things, of thoughts being born and dying and things too. And so there's there's all these little processes. We go so deep on this, but I don't know that we will in the interest of time today. But man, uh, <laughs> I I uh, blowing my mind left and right here. I I think about and going back to Tony Robbins too. One of the things he said this quote that's just kind of stuck with me so hard about. Uh, what you associate with pleasure and what you associate or link to l- pleasure or pain will determine your destiny. And uh, and yet through it all, like you talk about, it seems like there's purpose, deep purpose to both pleasure and pain and learning to derive correct, congruent, aligned meaning out of it. Because where we go wrong is yeah. where we're out of alignment. And we talk in our podcast, the word joy literally means alignment, by the way, in some cultures. <laughs> wow. so this is where we're going real deep, real, real deep. Uh, wow. And it's so true because, you know, you see, like, I think the purpose of, of when we have these painful experiences is to do those two things. Like, can I question and challenge these things? Essentially, like when you're in pain, you've got a one-sided story that you're telling, right? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I am only going to get bullied in the meeting. I'm only going to, you know, have these painful experiences around those people at the event. And it's like we get hypnotized into just imagining and and seeing and and repeating that narrative to ourselves over and over again. And it's when we can step out of it and question it. And and when we question it, it's not to to turn and say, oh, the meeting is going to be the best day of my life. You know, this is going to be, I'm only going to have the best time ever. That's not the purpose. And so I love what you're saying. It's it's to be able to go, hey, that could happen, but this could happen too. And I'm not going to attach to either side of the story. I'm going to leave room to be open and receptive and, and experience and be present. And the more we can question and clean up all that stuff, the more present we become. And, and the more, I think the natural the state of the natural state of the mind, the more clean you become of all these painful things is joy and mm. is gratitude. And so those things more naturally flow through. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent points. I, I think about too, some of the things you talk about and some of your videos and other places uh, you you use the term autopilot and getting off autopilot, which is part of this, I think, trance and hypnotic state <laughs> that sometimes or frequently, I guess, we fall into day by day. Um, how do we get off autopilot? How do we uh, consciously, you know, that's one of the reasons our podcast is called Empower Humans. How do we empower ourselves uh, to get out of these these ruts where other forces that we don't understand are controlling us? Uh, but that are part of us that we need to understand and get control over. How do we get to that place? <laughs> Sorry, it's a long question. It's beautiful. No, it's a wonderful question because, again, it's like these are such important um, things. So so um, first and foremost, like, you know, really simple habits are um, meditation or meditation and yeah. journaling, anything related to self-reflection, because what it's actually forcing you to do is start self-observing. And the more we start self-observing, the more we're actually conditioning, where it's like the practice of using your conscious mind more. And the more you get comfortable there, the more use and, and the more comfort you start having in there. So that's just in terms of habits. I, I always recommend starting there. Mm-hmm. But one of the most, so two things you can do throughout the day. Um, one of them is, is have anchors. So have, you know, Every time you close a door, your car door or the door to your office or to your room or whatever it might be, use that as, you know, make this association built in there where you go, okay, every time I close the door, I'm going to try to wake up and out of that trance and just check in. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What have I been doing on autopilot for the last little bit? And so we can sort of assign Hmm. things that have a certain noise or a habit that we naturally do throughout the course of the day. Every time you go to the bathroom or brush your teeth or or whatever it might be to, to sort of change that. 
We can also do things where we intentionally use our conscious mind by putting the subconscious things we naturally do into a conscious space. So for example, um, brushing your, your teeth with the opposite hand or drinking <laughs> coffee with the opposite hand, you know, yeah. things that are creating mindfulness just as a byproduct of, of practicing. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, what I've found to be like the most powerful thing, both with myself and in practice with others, is your emotions are there to wake you up. They're actually there trying to prod you awake. They're trying to make the subconscious content conscious. And so when we can use, like, it's like we have this built-in feedback mechanism trying to wake us up all day. And so when we can use negative experiences as an opportunity to wake up out of trance, because that Mm -hmm. your emotions are these alarm bells, like, wake up, wake up. They're trying to do that. And then we can ask ourselves, okay, what painful stories have I been telling or what needs do I have that have to be met right now? And we can start self-reflecting. We save so much unnecessary time that would otherwise be spent suffering. And so when we adopt this attitude of investigating and inquiring about our emotions or our emotional output, instead of just getting further hypnotized by them and refeeding stories and, and being on that, that sort of suffering space on autopilot, we, we save so much time. And, and so really it's like three steps. Start to notice that you don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Go inwards and ask yourself, what have I just been thinking or believing? Or what stories or movie have I been creating? Whichever way you want to ask that. Mm-hmm. And step three, or what unmet needs do I have? And it might take, you know, the habit of mastering that might take 30 seconds to run through or a minute to really reflect as you're driving or as you're walking somewhere or whatever it might be. But you probably just saved yourself three hours of, of suffering on autopilot and then complaining to somebody else and then you know, being rude or short to one of your coworkers as a mm-hmm. result and then feeling guilty about that. And, and so we want to break the cycle. And, and then again, our emotions are there to wake us up all day long if we start using them as what they're there for. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good points. I, I was listening, in fact, yesterday to an interview. Uh, Ed Milet was interviewing Brendan Burchard, uh, a couple of powerhouses in the <laughs> self-help kind of mm-hmm. space. And yeah. it's a brand new interview. Uh, but in any case, uh, Brendan has this high performance habits. I think one of six or seven books he has out. It's the most recent one. But in that book, which I've listened to the audio version, uh, one of the things he talks about is uh, all the things that differentiate high performance people in the world from those who aren't necessarily. <laughs> and and one of those things is what you're talking about is being self-aware, uh, journaling and, and knowing who you are, knowing what you're good at, what you're not good at, knowing things that you need to maybe delegate or, you know, hire out in, in the business world. And, and also, they're the kind of people that, that know what they want uh, out of life. And some of us, I think for various reasons, uh, sometimes it's maybe we don't feel like we deserve things or whatever. I think that's one of the more common, but don't know what they want. So if you ask a group of people and maybe half and half, 10 are high performance kind of people and half aren't, uh, he also said there's statistics or something about uh, they can answer a question like that, like, I don't know, I don't remember what it was, like 30 seconds faster and have like seven things that they can say about what they want out of life versus people who haven't even thought about it might say one or two and really struggle. So it takes some real conscious effort. I guess I'm just making a point, kind of piggybacking what you said. And uh, a lot of I keep going back in my mind. We haven't talked a lot about this yet, about unmet needs. Uh, and I know Tony, you may know Tony Robbins talks about needs a lot too. He has this thing about six human needs and some of these yeah. things differ person to person, uh, certainty and uncertainty and uh, <laughs> contribution and 
Uh, anyway, very significant connection. Yes, yeah. you know, you know, you've done your homework. Good, you passed that <laughs> test. Yes. Uh, tell so, me about needs. Tell me about unmet needs and what that does. Yes. Okay. So I actually developed a system around this. Um, as I was sort of like investigating, I did a deep dive on the beliefs and thoughts and then the needs themselves. So this is what I found actually, and it actually, I'm glad you raised this because it, it came from. Um, originally Tony Robbins' six basic human needs. So mm-hmm. he says we have six basic human needs, and as you were saying, there's certainty, uncertainty, growth, significance, contribution, love, and connection. Well and done. what I found is that most people are very unconscious of these things. And Tony Robbins talks about this a little bit too, where, you know, as an example, you might be, you might love travel, but you might not realize that you're doing that because you're trying to get uncertainty or growth. Right. So, so they're very, like, they're deeply subconscious. And I found that in working with people, people have a hard time, like, really recognizing that and identifying with that. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people get, get angry and get into fights and, and bicker with others because they actually feel significant when they have a problem in their life. And if you tell somebody, oh, you're trying to get significance, Matt, when they're really angry at Sally, it, it, you know, <laughs> usually you don't get a good, in practice working with clients, it doesn't go over well 100% of the time. So, so what I found is that it's actually, um, we have three types of needs. We have our six basic human needs, which I like to call our primary needs. Yeah. And then we have our personality needs or secondary needs. And these are actually the needs we deeply identify with our sense of self. And they're sort of like these, these streams or rivers leading back to the, the big pond or the, the ocean, right, of our six basic human needs. Mm-hmm. And these are, are much more identifiable for people. So let's say, for example, that um, somebody has a need for love and connection. And this is where, you know, this might be sound a little complicated, but it'll make a lot of sense as I go through it towards the end. Um, mm-hmm. We might have a basic need for, for love and connection. And then based on the beliefs we have and the associations we make, which are just another form of beliefs, throughout life, we develop different strategies to get that need met. So you might have Bob and let's say Bob is, um, he, he has a high need for love and connection and then he gets, um, you know, bullied at school and he doesn't do that well with his peers, but he feels really safe around his family. Bob probably grows up to be like, you know, a family man and, and have a family as quickly as possible and get married and really talk about his family. And he's got pictures on his office, you know, um, desk and, and his fridge and, and he will probably consider himself, Oh, I'm, I'm a family person. He'll talk about family. He'll think about family. It'll be a part of his subconscious identity mm-hmm. or part of the ego mind essentially. Right. Yeah. And so, so we have these like secondary needs that are strategies because he had more positive associations to family programs programmed in as a way of getting that need met and less positive associations to peers. You might take somebody by, by comparison who grows up, doesn't get along with their family, has lots of friends, and they might go on to talk about their friends all the time and have a really high need for social connection. And so family and social connection would be what I call secondary needs. Yeah. And then we have our tertiary needs, our, our third needs, and these are our moment-to-moment needs. And these are still streams leading back to the larger streams of our, our personality needs and then leading back into the big pond of our six basic human needs. So, for example, when you're around social people, you've got that need for social connection, you might need to be seen, heard, understood. Mm-hmm. You might need to be um, paid attention to. You might need to be validated or complimented. And, and so these are these sort of strategies we have that are our moment-to-moment needs 
that are then leading back into our personality needs, the part of our, our needs that we identify as our sense of self, that are actually just these subconscious strategies to get our six basic human needs met. And wow. so it's when we're looking at our needs on a daily basis, usually the easiest way to do it is to when we're looking for like what we need, we most often throughout the course of the day, if we're like, oh, what unmet need do I have? We are, are looking at the tertiary needs. It's like, oh, I want to be heard in my meeting. I want to be understood by my partner. I want to be um, validated by my friends. I want to be, you know, whatever it might be. And those are all going to be related to, related to love and connection or maybe mm-hmm. even significance if we talk about validation. And so we really want to look at the moment-to-moment needs and become masterful at that. And for anybody who's interested in understanding that, we have free literature on our website, um, the personaldevelopmentschool.com or just personaldevelopmentschool.com, all one word, no that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But there's also, you can just Google it and you can just look up like my my daily needs and, and you'll get sort of those things. And we want to become familiar because if we become familiar, we start to understand ourselves. And when we get our needs met more and we're more in alignment with them, the mind actually becomes more still. And we, we run that internal dialogue and we get into trance less because when we have an unmet need, our brain gets active and it goes, oh, this person doesn't like me and, and all these things. And we start telling stories and we can put an end to that um, by being in alignment with our needs and knowing what they are. And then obviously by using our emotions as feedback to try to break those stories and, and not trance. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very great, deep, excellent points. It's it's real interesting what people do with uh, needs in general because, like we talk about, like for, you mentioned significance as one example, and I know Tony's talked about this too. But you know, you can get significance by putting a gun to someone's head and robbing them because that moment mm-hmm. you become the most significant person on the block uh, for them, uh, or you could get significance in any other number of ways through excelling in business or with your family or, you know, your church or whatever people do with their lives. So there's all kinds of ways to meet these needs. And then we, it sounds like we ought to sometimes question, uh, am I doing this the most effective way? And, and, and again, it's part of what we talked about earlier, waking up to who we are, what we are, and, and, and what's the most, what's satisfying and maybe even more importantly, what's dissatisfying in our lives so that we can replace that. And how would people replace if they come to realize, oh, you know, I'm robbing too many people at gunpoint, and that's not really satisfying me in my life, maybe, <laughs> uh, for a silly example, but serious, uh, how would people maybe then shift gears and and maybe find another way to do that? Because, see, like, again, we get into these, these ruts, these patterns, these things you're talking about. This is what humans do uh, of repetition. How do we break these cycles and, uh, you know, change those things? Because that's, that's – transformation is such a – it's such a hot topic, but it's also such a like taboo, difficult thing for people to do. Yes, it's a beautiful question. So one of the, one of the most important things to recognize is the brain is always trying to get its needs met in mm-hmm. the fastest way possible because it's like that survival oriented part of our brain. It's like get food, get water, get shelter, move on. Like, and our brain is structured that way. But I call these outdated strategies. And and one really clear example that you'll see is sometimes people when they feel emotionally disconnected in a relationship, they start bickering and they like pick a fight or they do these different things. And, and well, what happens when you're bickering or fighting? Well, both people are really emotionally connected. So sure, you get your need for love and connection met, but it doesn't feel good. 
and so what we want to be able to do is, is the, the patterns we don't like in our life, like the things we say we're sabotaging ourselves or, you know, whatever it might be. There's no such thing as self-sabotage. What, it, what self-sabotage actually is, is a subconscious strategy for your brain to get different needs met that your conscious mind is judging as not being good, but your subconscious is like, no, this is good. Our needs are getting met. So what we want to be able to do is when there's something we don't like, if it's the, the robbing somebody at gunpoint or if it's the, um, hopefully nobody's doing that, but, but if it's the, um, the bickering with, with your partner or friend or whatever it might be, you want to be able to ask yourself, what need is my brain getting that from doing this? And then what's an updated strategy to start empowering this need in my life? Because what that painful thing is that you're doing, what that's telling you is that you're disempowered in that area to begin with. And that's why your brain's relying on this strategy to get that need met. So for example, if, if it's like fighting with people all the time, well, that's no fun. And, and so what is that telling you? Oh, maybe I'm needing love and connection. I'm going about it in the wrong way or attention. I'm going about it in the wrong way or significant feeling empowered by the power struggle between people. And what that's telling me overall is that I'm not getting enough self-validation in my life. I must be putting myself down somewhere or I'm not feeling empowered as a human being on my own Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be. And so we want to create what I call updated strategies. So it can be another three-step process. It's like, what are the things in my life I don't like that I'm doing? Mm-hmm. What needs am I getting met for doing those things? And then what updated strategies can I start creating? You know, what, what updated strategies can I come up with to start empowering these things more in my life? Like, how can I connect to my partner in a healthier way when I feel emotionally disconnected instead of picking a fight? Or how can I empower myself more in my life instead of fighting with people to try to feel like I have power over them? And if you do that repetitively, your subconscious starts to use that as a new way of getting the needs met on autopilot because through repetition, we pattern things in and then those old painful coping mechanisms will fall away as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Conscious, uh, intentional habit changing, uh, repetition, we should say, like you said, uh, it makes all the difference, but that takes effort. That takes work. And sometimes people don't want to do the work, but unfortunately or fortunately we should say that's that's part of the requirement to get to those places and we need to just speak that as tough love to humanity and to ourselves really too uh, so I, I think it's and, in it yeah go ahead yeah I want to just mention this because you raise another like you keep saying passing things that are so important um, so <laughs> you're right people don't want to do the work but it's actually because of the emotional imprints and programmed associations they have to quote unquote work it's yeah. like, oh, that's hard. That's going to be a lot. And because remember we said earlier that the brain makes decisions, neuroscience has proven the brain makes decisions based on emotion. So it's actually the program associations we have to how much work that will take to create, you know, our brain's wired to avoid pain. So it's like, oh, work, that's going to be hard. That's going to be challenging. It's going to be painful. Let me avoid it. But something we can do to actually motivate ourselves at the emotional level to take action and do work is to look at the cost. Because if we can start associate, associating pain with not doing the work, then our subconscious mind's like, oh, okay, we actually want to do the work now. And, and we can sort of hack it for ourselves. And so if you can look at, like, what does it cost me to keep fighting with my partner instead of coming up with conscious habits in our relationship where we connect better or when I feel disconnected, just saying, hey, I want to do something together and, and let's plan a date night or, or something like that or becoming more vulnerable, expressing vulnerably, you know, 
what does it cost me to fight all the time instead of do that? And what does it cost me long-term five years from now, 10 years from now? What do my kids see growing up? What do, and, and if you can really look at the cost of not taking action, because again, the brain is wired to avoid pain, what you'll naturally see is that your brain's like, oh, I actually do want to do that now. Yeah. And if, especially if you can, on the other side, link the positives and the pleasure of taking the action and what it feels like to have that harmony in your relationship or to stop fighting with people or, you know, the peace that comes in your life. And, and so sort of hacking that can be very beneficial as well. Yeah. It, it always goes back to this reframing of things in a different way in, in terms of seeing it in a different way too. And I appreciate uh, and thank you for interjecting all of that. Uh, that's very, very fascinating. And it kind of reminds me of this old law of the purchase. You know, what do I desire? What is its cost? Am I willing to pay the cost? But in the framing sense, you're framing the cost of not taking action, of not doing these things, is greater than uh, the cost on the other side because the benefit, just like if you go buy something, you're buying something based on the benefit. A lot of times there's a lot of emotion. Well, that's a whole other topic about why people buy things. But uh, when it comes to our emotional state and our <laughs> well-being as people, uh, that's that's a big part of that process too. So seeing the cost, I think that's a big, good four-letter word uh, not not of the Absolutely. vulgar kind, but a good four-letter word for us to keep in mind. What's the cost on both sides of this coin? <laughs> um, Absolutely. And the moment we ask ourselves that question and really think it through and reflect, we're actually getting out of trance of that old pattern of just associating the habit to, oh, or you know changing the habit's going to be hard, and and those associations hypnotize us into avoiding. We actually bring our conscious mind online and we, we analyze and we go, oh, what is the cost? And, and in doing that, we get out of trance and, and we break down these old associations and we can change our imprint over time by doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent points. I, I think too, because you talk a lot about attachment and attachment theory, and this is a topic that I find very intriguing and uh, very interesting as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about that and attachment theory, because it all, I think it's all connected, again, for lack of a better word, when we're saying attachment, to all these other things we're talking about, about how we attach uh, in interpersonal relationships, even with coworkers or, of course, intimate relationships, or even perhaps with animals, you know, pets and whatnot. But talk to me about attachment theory, if you would. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I, I find that people get so interested in this topic too. Um, so basically attachment theory was developed, um, uh, quite a long time ago by John Boldy, um, where he talked about basically we have these different strategies to connect to people that come from our caregivers. And, and then a lot of work has been done more recently to talk about, um, how, our early childhood patterns of attachment to caregivers basically impact our adult romantic relationships. Mm. And so what I've basically done myself is then try to understand that from the subconscious level and how we can reprogram the things we don't like there. And so essentially our attachment style you can think of is like the subconscious set of rules that you play by when it comes to interacting and relating to other people. And we can, we can attach in a certain way to our romantic partners, to our friendships, to exactly what you said, our animals, family members, all these different things. Mm -hmm. And there are four main attachment styles. So the first style is secure. And that's when we have a healthy expression of our, our needs and our, our beliefs and our stories. And, and there, of course, can be like little triggers and, and stuff like that that a secure person can have. But overall, there's a lot more positive 
ratio to negative than anything else. Um, and basically secure people grow up in a household where they've learned that when they cry or express emotions, their emotions are worthy of being seen, heard, understood. Mm. And when they express needs, those needs are met or at least held space for and negotiated. And as a result of feeling like their feelings matter and their needs matter, they grow up with greater a sense of self-esteem, self-worth. Right. And then that impacts the way they connect to others, how vulnerable they feel they can become, how much they can listen to others and make them feel like they matter as well. And, and so secure people are like, you know, that's what we're all trying to get to in terms of our attachment style. Nowadays, a lot less people have a secure attachment style. And, and the three insecure attachment styles are number one, dismissive avoidance. Number two, fearful avoidance. Number three, anxious preoccupied. So our dismissal avoidance are like the people who um, are the don't want to commit to relationships or don't want to be vulnerable too quickly. Um, sometimes we'll stay out of relationships for a long time. They really want their space, their independence, their autonomy. And while people can have a natural need towards those things, which is totally fine, dismissal avoidance usually have like a, a more extreme version of that. And so dismissal avoidance are the people you'll see have like a lot of the cold feet. Now, the reason this has actually happened is because there was some form of emotional neglect that they experienced in their upbringing. And so they might have had an experience where mom and dad were emotionally unavailable. Um, but, you know, sometimes dismissal avoidance can go sort of overlooked because they won't have necessarily a whole bunch of trauma in their childhood or anything like that, but there was enough consistency based on how the brain makes associations where there was more negative associations built into vulnerability, to feeling seen, to feeling heard, to feeling open, feeling like their emotions were safe or they mattered. There were more negative associations built into that for any number of reasons than positive. And sometimes, you know, dismissal avoidance had a perfect family life from the outside, like the needs were met and there was, you know, harmony and things like that, but there, mm -hmm. there was a form of emotional neglect that can be hidden or just, you know, outward extreme emotional neglect is obviously a possibility too. So they go on and as a result of their imprinting, they basically learn that in, in how they relate to others. So in their relationship to themselves, they repress their own emotions. They don't feel safe or feel good being vulnerable to others. They don't like the idea of commitment and they learn to deal with their own emotions by self-soothing, by taking that space, you know, if, if two partners are in a fight and one is a dismissive avoidant, the dismissive avoidant is not going to want to talk things out right away. They're going to go silent and inwards for quite a while before they are, are ready to warm back up again. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you'll see these people be like a little cold or standoffish or aloof or, you know, slow moving when it comes to thinking about a commitment in a relationship, et cetera. The anxious yeah. preoccupied is like the opposite end of the spectrum. So they're the ones that had a lot of positive emotional associations built into connection, but there was always some kind of form of inconsistency. So maybe mom and dad were really emotionally available, but they worked a lot. And so when they were there, they were like, oh my gosh, this is great. I can't wait to see my, my family's home. But then when they were gone, usually the anxious preoccupied felt afraid, alone, these sorts of things. So they got these imprints, right? I'm alone. I'm emotionally abandoned. Um, I'm afraid to be alone. I feel unsafe when I'm alone. And they don't really learn to self-soothe. They learn to soothe through others. And so they get all these fears of abandonment, fears of, of a relationship um, ending, you know, all these different things. And of course, because of that inconsistency and, and fear of being alone and things like that built in their childhood early imprints, those become the rules of how they relate to other people in their adult lives. So you might see this person and, and judge them as, oh, they're being needy or they're... Um, 
they 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 come clingy or all these different things. Well, really, it's it's just trauma repeating itself. It's being it's mm-hmm. old subconscious wounds and trauma being reprojected, and so. Those are sort of the two extremes there. And then you have the the fearful avoidant, which is the attachment almost so characterized by trauma, like anybody who saw a lot of fighting, violence, um, um, maybe they had parents who were depressed on and off, addicts, um, and basically they don't learn an attachment strategy. They see so much inconsistency that the way that they deal with things isn't to soothe through others or soothe through themselves. They basically just learn to be hypervigilant and quite untrusting. And so, you know, they go into their adult lives and they want closeness and they have some positive associations built to closeness and then they fear it at the same time. And so they sort of, their attachment style is characterized by ambivalence, like wanting closeness and then the closeness comes and they're like, no, 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 get away from me, <laughs> stay away. And so you, you get the, the manifestation of a very hot and cold partner, usually who has quite a bit of trust wounds, very hypervigilant, very aware of body language changes, tone of voice changes, um, those sorts of things. And, um, and obviously that can be really tough on, on a relationship. So basically the idea is that we want to understand what our attachment style is, start to understand the core wounds that are associated with it. Um, the painful unmet needs that, that are happening and the rules we have for relating the expectations, the fears, all those different things and be able to reprogram what's not serving us any longer because nothing really has a greater impact on our romantic relationships, our friendships, our family relationships than our attachment style because it's the roadmap we're navigating relationships through at the subconscious level. Yeah. Wow. Very, very deep. I invite anyone, everyone listening, go dig deeper on all those, uh, secure, dismissive avoidance, fearful avoidance, and of course, uh, anxious, preoccupy these things that you delved into. And you're still just touching the tip of the iceberg on a lot of this for the purpose of an interview. That's why we could all take, like we talk about a deep dive in each and every one of these areas. And that's why you went to school for so long and got all these certifications and stuff too. Uh, very, very interesting. And you talk about wounds. This is a very common term used in this arena. And I think all of us have some form of wounds, whether we were bullied for this or that reason, you know, you're a nerd or you're, you were overweight or whatever, whatever the world you you thought the world was judging. Um, what do we do with wounds? Cause you said early on, we were talking about healing and you talked about healing yourself. And what I've learned over the years is that all these things, empowerment and healing are things that ultimately we have to do largely ourselves. Uh, it's on us to get to that place. And, and in a lot of ways that's liberating, uh, because we, you get to a place where you realize you don't have to necessarily depend on anyone or anything else. But talk to me about healing, if you would, and maybe in context to some of the things you do. I know you do all these things with neuro-linguistic programming and hypnosis and things like that, but whatever you want to cover when it comes to healing, because I think that's something that can resonate with lots and lots of people. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically, like, you know, what I do inside the school is nothing like related to hypnosis. Now I, I more teach principles for people of how to reprogram their own subconscious mind related to these specific things. So whether mm-hmm. it's attachment tra- trauma or core wounds or different relationship patterns that are popping up or procrastination, self-sabotage, unmet needs, whatever it is, we sort of like go through reprogramming principles. So there's a whole bunch of different key ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but let's talk about the, I'll give one like very specific one. So, so, Let's say in relationship to different attachment styles, um, 
dismissive avoidance, for example. They tend to have a core wound that says something's wrong with me. It's like a defective misbelief in themselves. And, and part of the reason is if you're a child and you, you're naturally wired for connection and vulnerability and attunement and you don't get that from your caregivers, mm-hmm. the childhood mind personalizes things. It doesn't go, oh, my caregivers are emotionally unavailable. It doesn't think that way when you're two or three years old. It starts just feeling like, oh, there must be something wrong with me. And yeah. that becomes this stored part of, of your filter. And imagine walking around life believing that, right? It's, it's, it's excruciating. And usually you're not even that aware of it. Usually you're just behaving in a way that's like, I can't let people too close because they're going to see that something's wrong with me. Or you have an anxious person who is going, um, oh my gosh, you know, this person's going to leave me at any time in my relationship. And there's this ongoing fear of abandonment because I'm abandoned or I will be abandoned as a core wound. So we have, there's, there's about 18 to 22 core wounds that I've found over time. Um, and depending on how much you're sort of separating, like, for example, I am helpless and I am powerless, or I am helpless and I am trapped, there can be some, some very close similarities between certain ones. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, number one, in order to change a problem, we have to isolate what it is. And and this isn't just a huge missing piece in terms of, like, overcoming things at the emotional level. Is, is people are like, oh, I just feel sad. Okay, why? Like, what am I believing about myself or a situation? So one of the ways you can find your core wounds first and foremost, is notice a situation that's upsetting you. And when the situation is upsetting you, so let's say it's your boss was rude to you at work today or short with you at work. Mm-hmm. We have to recognize that, that the meaning we give is going to be related to those core wounds or belief patterns we have, those associations that are already in our subconscious. And we want to dig them up. So you can ask yourself, okay, if this is causing me pain that my boss was short, what am I making that mean or what am I afraid will happen? And basically you keep asking yourself that question and you'll hit this like, oh my gosh, that really, I feel that one. That really scares me or that, that really hurts. So you might go, well, I make it mean that he doesn't like me. Okay. And so then what are you afraid will happen or what do you make it mean when he doesn't like you? Well, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job. Okay, and then what do you make it mean or what are you afraid is going to happen if you lose your job? And maybe it's, well, then I'm going to be out on the streets and I'm going to be unsafe or helpless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and that's when you're going to feel like, oh, my gosh, and that really doesn't feel good. And so those are, I am unsafe, I am helpless, or two core wounds. So then we want to, once we've isolated that problem, okay, and I know, you know, at the beginning you have to ask the question and reflect for a moment, but... Honestly, if you practice, it just comes like second nature. You just know right away, oh, my boss is mad. Here's what's happening to me at the, at the sort of root level. Yeah. Then you want to really question it. You know, because my boss was mad, I'm going to lose my job. Can I really know that? Like, is that 100% a certainty right now? And we want to question these things because we, when we don't, we just refeed them on autopilot and they just become more reinforced in our identity. And so you want to be able to say like, okay, you know, what are some counteracting pieces of evidence? Because the brain responds to, to evidence that my yeah. boss isn't going to fire me. Oh, I've been here for four years. I am really good at my job for the most part. You know, there, I haven't ever been in trouble, you know, these sorts of things. And so you want to look for whatever counteracting pieces of evidence. And again, this isn't to like exclusively be like, oh, I'm only perfect and I'll never get fired in my life. It's to be able to equilibrate or undo that one-sided story that you were feeding. And it's like, you really want to find that evidence. And then what you can do if you're trying to actually get rid of that wound altogether, and one reprogramming exercise that I share with people is go home and whatever core wounds you know are really hard for you, like fear of abandonment, 
feeling like you're unsafe in your life, feeling like I can't trust people. I will be betrayed. I am helpless. I'm powerless. Whatever really strong things are alive for you, what you want to do is practice every day for 21 days because this is roughly how long it takes for your brain to create new neural pathways and Mm -hmm. fire and wire them until they get really programmed in and then your old patterns start to atrophy. Those old pathways start to die out over time and get weaker. What you want to do is every evening go home and find 10 to pieces, 10 to 15 pieces of evidence for why this is not the case. So for example, if you're walking around carrying this big, I am unsafe wound. Okay. How am I safe? And every day, 10 to 15 reasons you're safe. You know, I have a roof over my head. I have um, food. I have a job. I can pay my bills. I have friends and family I can reach out to and count on. I'm a strong person. I've overcome things before. And you want to find these things repetitively and have these emotionally evidence-based reminders for yourself on a daily basis for 21 days. And you will really see these things start to die out. Mm. Boy, that's that's uh, really, really deep. Uh, yeah, and I think I think the real key message of all of it, uh, all of it is really, of course, very valuable. Everything you said, but the real key core thing is that we are able, we are empowered, and we empower ourselves, and we can do it. We can do, have, be anything, and whatever we've all been through, uh, good and bad, and painful and not so painful, but uh, we can still have, do, be anything. You know, it goes back, I talk a lot lately about Stephen Covey and the seven habits being proactive is <laughs> that first habit. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what he talks about is, is, is taking initiative and taking control that way. And, you know, I think about my, I have an eight year old son, by the way, uh, I have eight and 10 year old boys, but my eight year old still gets kind of scared at night. And I try to do this with him, what you're saying of kind of giving evidence of, you know, you're eight. And so I kind of do the math. Okay. You've lived probably over 3000 days so far or thereabouts, and uh, <laughs> and nothing's happened any of those nights to you. So there's a lot of evidence that just continues to accumulate day by day. So let's not be scared at night. And I give him things to, you know, of course, uh, <laughs> uh, feel better and stuff too. And he has little night lights. He has these LED lights that change colors and stuff now too. But anyway, <laughs> I just think, beautiful. yeah, I mean, we try to do our best. But, you know, I always fall short as a dad. So and do you have any input for people as parents? Because a lot of this stuff, it sounds like as we come full circle here, goes back to childhood. Uh, parents generally want the best for their kids. And we all know we screw up as parents. <laughs> but and I don't know if you're a parent yourself, but you deal with a lot of people, I'm sure, that are. Is there anything parents can do uh, from that angle to help their kids be more empowered and happy and well-adjusted members of society? Yeah, I mean, what you said is so beautiful. Like, what you, how you're showing up with your son is like to give him all these reasons that he is safe and you're going to help sort of repattern that. Another little thing you can add in there too, which is cool, is you can just isolate the problem. Like, what are you afraid of? And then you try to, you try to debunk that for him. So, if he's afraid that there's a monster, you know, what are 10 pieces of proof every day that there are monsters under the bed or, you know, whatever it is. And so, it really targets like that specific thing. It's just a, a really good analogy. Um, but it sounds, I mean, it sounds like you're a great father. So, um, in terms of parenting itself, I would say a few really key things develop a lot of security in kids. And, and when we are like looking at emotionally based problems, let's say somebody's listening to this so far and they're like, I have all these core wounds. I had every single core wound she mentioned. Mm-hmm. You can think of like this kind of stuff as being like, legs on a table if you knock out like one or two or three legs of the table the the rest falls like you don't have to go through every little you know square inch on the table to to work through it they start to it has like a ripple effect outwards and so in terms of when people are parenting 
what's so important to do is recognize these key things that are sort of acting as the legs of the table. And, and for some parents, it might be a little bit difficult if they have their own, um, fears here or different things, but it's, it's such important work to do. So number one, you want to make space to validate your children's feelings. You know, I, it's so common. I, I'm sure you probably even grew up like this. It's like, don't yeah. cry. You know, men don't cry, you know, and, <laughs> and you're taught like repress your emotions. That actually is a core contributor to depression as well as emotional repression. So yeah. what we want to be able to do is make peace with our emotions and you learn that emotions are just feedback mechanisms. They're, they're there to give us information. And so it's important for kids to not fall into that repressed state and to be able to go, um, you know, to, to hold space. Hey, what are you upset about? Or what do you need to feel better? Or what are you afraid of that's causing you to be upset? And, and to help a child process through their feelings that way. And you can just do it really simply, like validate their feelings or notice them, ask them questions, hold space for them. And then just ask, what do you need to feel better? And then negotiate that need. You don't, you know, no parent has to turn around and meet every child's need 24 seven. And all of a sudden the child's like eating chocolate in bed all day or anything yeah. like that. <laughs> it's just about holding space and making them see that there is, you know, their, their feelings do matter. Their needs are worthy of being met. And if you can do those two things, what that does for a child is it, it gives them this sense of internal self-confidence, this belief in themselves. Like I do matter. I am worthy. I'm not being emotionally abandoned. And, and it, it is like a proactive measure. If you're talking about speeding coffee, it's this proactive measure for how to not grasp all these core wounds because when children's feelings aren't heard or their needs are not met, they think, Oh, I'm, I'm not worthy. I'm not loved. I don't, you know, I'm not cared about. I am disliked. I don't matter. I'm unimportant. All these core wounds start popping up all over the place because our feelings and our needs are our deeper sense of self. And yeah. so if those two things are honored and just seen, heard, understood, made space for negotiated. Um, then right there, you are much more likely to have a secure child, and you're also proactively foregoing a lot of self-wounds that will lead to lower self-esteem or, or painful behaviors long-term. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Deep, deep, great points. And I, th- and I think going even a step further, for those of us who maybe didn't grow up as much that way to varying degrees, uh, as adults, we can do those things for ourselves now, even if parents maybe weren't there to do it maybe quite the right way or whatever even well-meaning parents uh, always are falling mm-hmm. short that we can empower ourselves and validate ourselves and find our own worthiness just like we we might try hopefully to do <laughs> for children uh, out there as well and absolutely I feel like I could talk to you all day we're going to have to talk again I uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> may I say one one little thing yeah what else what, what else do you want to add always, as we close here go ahead and it's and it's not an yeah, emergency just, either go ahead take your time you said a beautiful thing about like we can do that for ourselves and, and part of everybody's healing journey and it's maybe like cliche or cheesy as it sounds part of everybody's healing journey is like you heal when you become the parent you didn't have mm-hmm. so if you were missing validation from mom or you were missing safety from dad or whatever, you know, when you start giving those things to yourself and identifying those things, that's actually how we really heal. Because what we don't realize that we're doing is the things we didn't get 
we're still not giving them to ourselves on autopilot. The dismissive avoidant person who is emotionally neglected, they are so emotionally neglectful of themselves. And they're constantly retelling that story. Oh, something's wrong with me. The the anxious person who feels emotionally abandoned, they are always emotionally abandoning themselves on autopilot to try to get connection from other people. And so we keep these cycles and these imprints alive because we re-traumatize ourselves through repeating them. And and part of our healing involves going, okay, what did I not get met? Or what painful things, what painful stories am I carrying about myself? And how can I stop telling those stories or heal those stories or meet those needs for myself so that I actually get to that point of equilibrium again? And and so you said that yourself, like, you know, we have to give those things to ourselves. And a good way of thinking of it is like, we have to become what was missing from our parents. We become our own parents that way. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great way to put it. Thank you for saying all that. And uh, yeah, again, if we had 12 hours, I'd keep talking, but uh, I'm guessing <laughs> you for one don't, uh, so I don't want to keep you all day. But again, we can reconvene and, and uh, kind of pick up where we left off and add. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. Dig deeper on all this. Absolutely. Well, one thing I want to ask you, a couple things as we close, um, especially for a woman as you know, sharp, articulate, well-educated as you are, uh, do, do you have any heroes, anybody or, or in that same a line of questioning people you'd recommend people, you know, read or listen to and things as well. Who are some of your heroes? I know that's um, why I'm putting you on the spot or maybe you don't have any. No, no, no. It's really good. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not sure. I have some people I would highly recommend listening to and, and I'll go there. I think, I mean, just giving a really honest answer. I'm not sure if I would say a hero per se, but like I, uh-huh. I think that I have a really strong relationship with God. And I think that that was, uh, a huge thing in my life, like developing a spiritual connection that was sort of personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the first thing I honestly think of when I think of hero and, and sort of what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, but some books to read, some amazing books to read. Um, read Byron Katie, A Thousand Names for Joy. It's my favorite book I've ever read. Um, it has a lot to do with questioning your thoughts. And, and I had sort of gone on this journey myself and then come across that book as I was learning these things and realizing these things. And it was like, oh my gosh, somebody understands. Um, so beautiful, powerful book. Um, and I would also say, uh, Michael Singer, The Untethered Soul. It's a lot about like being out of, it's explained in a different way, but it's essentially about being out of trance and being able to witness your thinking and, and, um, sort of not be identified with it. I love um, that which book. Which is amazing. Good book. Pardon me? Oh, I love that book. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Keep going. Anything <laughs> no, else? No, no, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if you said I, I would read that book or I love that book. It's such a great book, guy. Um, and the last thing is for anybody who's maybe newer to this journey and wants like a quick read that really gets them started. Um, I would highly recommend the mastery of love by Don Miguel Ruiz. He also has a famous book called the four agreements. Um, but the mastery of love is, is about, again, it's like, it's, it's talking about basically the programmed associations that we have, but it's putting it in a more, um, day to day way and, and explaining sort of the story behind it. And, um, it's also about the, like, learning to love yourself and, and having a relationship to yourself that way. So those are the three go-tos I would highly recommend for anybody. Good. Cool. I'm, I'm taking notes. Literally. I, when I interview people and some people know this, I, I have a notepad and I write things down and <laughs> so I'm writing down these books. <laughs> I've, I've listened and read one or two of them, but I haven't all of them that you mentioned. So I appreciate that. Amazing. So people can yeah. find you on your YouTube channel, uh, personal development school, uh, which is also uh, your website, uh, the same name, essentially. Uh, 
And uh, boy, you've got actually you've got almost twenty four thousand subscribers and almost two million views. This is a vibrant, solid YouTube channel. Excellent, uh, just like here today, and probably way oh, more in depth you. on various topics. Excellent, excellent material there. So anyone, go subscribe, watch, and listen to all that and uplift yourself. You are a light in the world, Thais. You are doing oh, awesome thank work. Thank you so much. And I could talk and thank to you. you all day. And, and you're an amazing interviewer. And um, and <laughs> thank you for the work you're doing because you know getting lots of of beautiful people to to share different things, and you've shared some amazing things as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so again, go find uh, Thais Gibson at uh, all these various websites. Just search her up on Google. Her name is somewhat unique. T H A I S, right? Thais Gibson, and you can look her up there and uh, find all of her material, really, in social media and YouTube especially. So we could go on and on, but uh, until next time for our audience and reach out with questions, comments, and whatnot, and we'll try to answer those as well. We'll have some links in the show notes as well. But until next time, my friends, empower yourself, empower the world around you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit EmpowerHumans.com. We'll catch you next time.